this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we have an interview. Cool. Before we get to that, though, we have some business to attend to. We got two new Patreon subscribers, Jay. Woot, woot. Yeah. Woot, That's woot. awesome. Hit him with the hime. Uh, Jay, we got Rishi. I'm going to mess up the last name. I'm just. I'm going to say Adria. Welcome to Dig Me Out. Welcome to Dig Me Out, where Tim screws up everybody's name. And then our second uh, new pledger or, or patron is uh, goes by Spewy the Alien. Uh, Spewy, I believe, is our our, our uh, commenter and uh, on, on Facebook, Kevin. But uh, don't let anybody know about that because he goes by the alias Spewy the Alien. Mm, okay. Um, thank you both for pledging at the 250 level. Both of you guys, along with all of our previous Patreon subscribers, are now entered in to win our Dig Me Out 300th episode giveaway, which is a copy of Dig Me Out 33 and 3rd. I'll be posting about that coming up very soon. You're in it to win it. In it to win it. Jay, this week we're talking with Michelle Leon, former bassist for Babes in Toyland, and author of the book I Live Inside Memoir of a Babe in Toyland Jay let's get to the interview joining us where did I say the land of 10,000 lakes 10,000, 10, yes. 10,000, yes. Uh, and I think I said at least. At least. We're redoing this because of a technical issue. Everybody out there in, in podcast land, those things do happen. And the, and I already said hi to Spiele. Yes. So. Thank you. Um, Michelle Leon is joining us, author of I Live Inside, Memoirs of a Babe in Toyland, former bassist for Babes in Toyland. Thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thank you. So I was kicking off the first question, which I like to uh, ask all the authors, which have been three now in three months. What was the genesis of the book? Was this something that you came up with that you wanted to write? Or were you approached by someone to uh, put the book together? No, I came up with it. I um, was I was at Goddard College in Vermont, which is like a hippie writing school in the woods. Well, not just writing, but hippie artsy school in the woods of Vermont. And I was working on my MFA and writing about a lot of things. But I just realized that I had this story that I'm lucky enough that people are interested in. They're interested in that time in music and they're interested in, you know, my band in particular. So that's was kind of the genesis of just having this story to tell and hopefully an audience for it. We've read a lot. I know I have, and Jay probably has read some too. I've read a lot of autobiographies and band, you know, books 
whether they're from the 90s or, or different decades. And they tend to follow kind of a similar trajectory. You know, there's all sorts of things. And, and, and the way they're written and, you know, it's the behind the music syndrome in some senses where you, you kind of know that there's... <laughs> yours is a little bit different in the sense that, well, first of all, it's structured a little bit differently. And I'm curious... Mm-hmm. Um, why you approached it that way in terms of the structure because there's a lot of very short chapters um mm-hmm. it's almost written like a journal in that sense um and i'm curious if you kept a journal or anything like that and and why you decided to approach it that way um i did not keep a journal so i wrote this book for memories i wrote it from interviewing doing tons of interviews from looking at old photos and that's just how i write um, it was, I was going to write it more kind of a traditional literary style, you know, like more fleshed out, longer chapters, but, um, I studied a lot of poetry. So I just love packing in like a lot of imagery in a short amount of space. And I hate extra words. So I was like, what is the extra word in every extra words in every sentence? And how can I say this? Like this? simplest way possible but also like in poetry simple and complicated at the same time where things can have you know more than one meaning well i did notice it it did fluctuate between you know sort of like what i would say like fact-based where it's like we went here we did this we played this show these people were there i talked to them and then like these very sort of specific visual or sensory based memories which I find interesting because I, you know, I'm in my early 40s now and I have a hard time remembering things, details of things from like, say, 10 or 15 years ago. I can't imagine trying to remember very specific sensory uh, based details from the late 80s and early 90s. Do you have a good memory for that sort of thing where you can sort of like close your eyes and place yourself in that moment? Well, some of the things were just so sensory and that's exactly it that, you know, when I wrote, I would try to access like all five senses. And like when you're inside like a rock van, you are going to have like all the senses, you're going to have the smells and, you know, that we eat like the canned oysters. So you got like the taste and the smells and the, you know, all those things were so strong in my memory, more just those kind of details rather than the more linear stuff. The, so that was more what I had to refer to was like, look at old tour schedules and, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I do, I do have access to all those little details. And then, you know, again, interviewing people like Howard, who's in there a lot, who was our roadie, you know, I was like, oh, I remember Kat had, this old like 1950s like makeup suitcase you know those kind that you pop open and have a little mirror in them and stuff and I was like what what did she used to carry in there and you know he'd remember like there was throat coat tea and there was like one stray tampon or whatever you know so <laughs> just like all those kind of details are you know you're I just think that's interesting. It's more meant to be like this everyday life of, you know, these three women traveling together rather than the, the behind the music, like, Oh, you know, everybody was so, 
you know, how they all have the same story peak, you know, like uh, we started, you know, in the beginning and then it was great. And then, you know, everything fell apart. Um, you know, it wasn't so much that kind of a storyline as, as just more kind of a every day people trying to get along in these middle of these kind of extraordinary circumstances. Would you describe your, I guess your, your early like teenage upbringing is sort of middle class, mid, like Midwestern middle class that a lot of us can identify with? Cause that's what I got from the book. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think, a lot, yeah, a lot of people can identify with it and probably a lot also can't, um, you know, um, but yeah, for us, a lot of us Midwesterners, that suburban Midwest middle class. Yep. That's, okay. that's exactly the background. And just, yeah, a lot of, a lot of the book is just about feeling like when you do come from a background like that, kind of in the arts and in music that maybe you aren't, don't feel like people take you seriously. Well, I definitely feel like you have yeah. substance. Well, and also there is, and, and Jay, you could probably, you know, we're kind of from similar economic and, 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 and suburban backgrounds in the sense that you, there are, I guess, um, people in music who are absolutely 100% committed and it's because they maybe had a different background. I'm, I'm not sure what it is, but when you have sort of like a more, I don't know, I don't want to use the word safe, but when you have kind of this suburban middle-class background, the idea of like, I'm not sure if I want to sleep in a van for the next five years and like that and, and people's floors like that's, I, I know when we were in a band, that was like something I was like, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> we're we're, we're yeah, spoiled yeah. and have a certain level, a certain expectation of convenience. Yes. What you're saying. There's that, but also like it's gross. So it's a reasonable right. way to feel. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Like I, no, well, yeah. I, I sensed a little bit in the book. There were some times where there was like, is guilt the right word? Or there was some conflict in terms of maybe not feeling genuine or authentic or, or something like that in terms of, I don't know. There was a couple of comments in the book where I was reading into that a bit. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think that's for me, not unique to music, you know, um, I think that's, and that's something a lot of people have been able to relate to and, you know, musicians mm -hmm. are not of just that never quite feeling like you're in the right place or, or, you know, look like you, like you fit in. Um, so there's definitely that struggle. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was expecting maybe just cause anytime you read a book about or, or learn about an artist's background, there seems to be a theme of some kind of tragedy or difficulty or, and it was a little bit refreshing. I'm sure your childhood wasn't perfect, but that was just one example of many, I think in this book where there's, it actually avoids a lot of the stereotypes that I was, I think, going into it expecting. Was that, you know, were you aware of that at the time in terms of, uh, you know, maybe that there's when you're in a rock band, you're supposed to sort of act a certain way and there's a stereotype to it and what you're supposed to do and what's expected of you. Yeah. 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 It still happens 
today. You know, like um, I'll be, I'm a teacher and I'll be at work and people will find out about the band or, you know, there, there's been a lot of press here in Minneapolis and they're like, Oh, I didn't know. I would have never thought that you would play in a band. Uh, you know, like we're shocked and mm-hmm. that there's just like this certain way you're supposed to act if you're a musician that and most of the musicians that I know are, are more like me, you know, more, um, just kind of, you know, I mean, there's a whole variety of personalities, but I know a lot of musicians are more awkward and quiet and, you know, don't know what to do and say rather than, you know, what that expectation is that you're supposed to be like super wild or, or, you know, whatever that cliche would be. And that doesn't, I don't think that's, um, you know, true that often that you'd act like that, like in your everyday life, how you would act on stage. Sure. Is that something that took you some time being away from it to, um, I guess, um, become whole or make it part of, to include it in who you were now or or who you were at that time. So like essentially making that part of your life and and where you currently are sort of in harmony. Um, was that, did that take some time to get there? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I was really young. I was 17 when I started playing with them. So feeling like, oh, you know, you have all this like excitement in that early part of your life. And then that anything else is like a letdown or boring compared to that. And, you know, it's something that you do to yourself, I think more, but I mean, there is also, you do get that from the outside too. Like, Oh, you know, you're, you're a teacher now or, you know, um, sometimes you just have to, I, I don't know. I've seen people make comments, you know, about people who used to be musicians and they worked in a restaurant or something like that is some big tragedy, you know, that you just have like a regular person job, mm-hmm. um, when there's just absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So, so um, I'm sorry, that was kind of rambly. So back to the point of, um, <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, feel free to like herd me back on track. (laughs) (laughs) Ramble. All right. But yeah, yeah. So I do, I guess I do feel at peace with it now where I'm like, Mm -hmm. that was a great part of my life. And this is also a great part of my life. And Mm -hmm. you can be all kinds of things. You can be a musician and a teacher and a real estate agent. And it isn't like you're reinventing yourself. They're all parts of yourself. They're all good and valid experiences. That's probably also more representative of people's lives today. I mean, it's not like 50 years ago when you would go work for a company and you would start with them out of college and you would work for 50 years earning your pension and you'd get the gold watch at the end and that would be it. Like most people don't stay with one company for, you know, for that long or stay even in the same field. They move, a lot of people move around in different aspects. It's It's just modern society now and yeah it's just different and why should and why shouldn't you you know have all these different experiences and, right. and figure out who you are I, and then there's other people who are like oh you know when i was a kid i knew i was going to be a veterinarian or or whatever and and that is just their passion too and that's there's something really beautiful about that too to know exactly right who you are and and have just that one passion so that's that's pretty cool when that happens to people too. 
So when you sat down to write the book, did you set aside a, a time of day to start writing or did you set a goal for like a daily writing amount? Was there any sort of thought to when I want to end this book and in terms of the first draft or were you just writing to write and to see what comes out? Well, when I finished at Goddard, the book was my thesis, so I had that. I had an early draft finish. Okay. And then I kept working on it for another four years. So I'm more of like a binge writer. Like I'm going to put aside a week and and I don't want to talk to anybody and I'm just going to work and um, get rid of all the distractions. So, but also, so that's one way I write. And then also... Um, I really like mornings, like when you first wake up and to just set a timer and I have like this, the freedom app. So it turns off all your internet and, and uh, that's another way I get very easily distracted. So, sure. so, so having just a really quiet space, but now I have, um, an 18 month old, so it's not as easy to find that time. Yeah. I was going to say that was pre pre kids, right? Mhm. Yeah. So it's a little different now. I haven't been writing as much, but now it's more like thoughts come to me in images, and then you just like jot them down really fast in a notebook, you know, to get right. to hopefully that I'll have more of a chance to get to later. Well, I, I Jay and I can both attest to uh, the, the amount of free time you have pre-kids and and this for any of our our single or childless uh, listeners out there uh you the amount the drastic amount of time you're you're in your like free time to do creative things like totally like this is why we do the podcast at like you know eight o'clock or nine nine o'clock east coast time for uh for me is because uh we can't do it during the day or or even in the early evenings because you got you know bedtimes and baths and book readings and yep. that kind of stuff. Yeah. I know. I mean, it definitely makes life more complicated in okay, all the really good ways. How old are your kids? Uh, mine just turned four in August and Jay Zora turned six in June. Six in June. Yeah. Oh, little ones. Nice. So both girls and, uh, Aww. It's weird being outnumbered now because <laughs> Jay, you yeah. probably you probably know the same. Oh yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I don't mind. <laughs> I, I don't know that yeah. I can take take a little boy in the house. That's Taren, true. Taren, they're so rowdy. <laughs> they are pretty rowdy. We get around little boys. We're like, what is wrong with them? They go on to climb I things know. and explore. Can't they just sit quiet and read yeah. a book? There's a lot of jumping off couches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. Everything is like danger right now. Just like you turn your head for one second, and this has like these elaborate schemes, like up on the foot rest, or you know, on the on the foot. What do you call it? The thing to make you to get up higher on the shelf. Okay, that part you cut out. <laughs> <the stool. laughs> A step. Get up higher on. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. So on that, up on top of the diaper genie to up on top of the counter, all in like one second. <laughs> oh yeah, they're fast. You know, watch for one second. They're they're doing something. You're like, what did you, how did you do that so fast? 
Um, so then how did the Minneapolis Historical Society Press become involved with the release of the book? Well, I had shopped it, not like I, you know, I didn't want to send it to 20 places just because I knew that it wasn't the kind of rock memoir that people were expecting or that publishers really wanted or, um, so I tried to really look for places that were doing similar things. And, um, so, you know, I just sent it to a handful of places and they, they were really responsive right away. And, um, I just thought it was a bit good fit because who's going to care more about my book than people here in Minneapolis, you know, and, and are going to put it in a place of importance. So they, they were just really wonderful. And my editor, Josh was amazing. And I was really scared because I thought that I would get a lot of pressure to change it and to make it more of a traditional style, you know, longer chapters and just longer in general. It's not that long of a book. Um, But pretty much the book is, what I wrote, you know, the editing was really light, maybe added about 10 pages and what was more like put a few more details about this and make this a little clearer. So um, it was a really good fit of them being really accepting of, of my, my vision of it. And then also being really helpful of, you know, the parts that we did add or things that I think are really important too. So we, we, uh, we do several different types of roundtables uh, throughout the year on the show, and one that we've talked about doing is um, focusing on scenes. Um, and I think certainly Minneapolis would be one that we'd want to focus on at some point. What are your memories? I guess big picture. What are the things that pop out of your in your mind when you think about that late '80s, early '90s uh, Minneapolis rock scene? Oh, it was just so, um, so much going on all the time. Like you go and you look at those old calendars and it was just like at least like three nights a week, if not like every night, there was like a show you wanted to see for, you know, not just local, but all the touring bands that would come to town. So it's just, I miss that having a community like that where you could just go out and all your friends are there and, you know, just be you play the shows and then there'd be parties at people's houses afterwards. And it was just, you don't know it when you're in the moment, but it was just really special and amazing and so much fun. So if, when we do that episode, we're going to hit on obviously the bigger bands, Goose Du and Soul Asylum and Low. What are some mm-hmm. of the bands that we should talk, spend some time either learning about or talking about that we may not know that you saw and, and thought were really, really good or, Special. Um, cows and oh. Run Westy Run are another legendary band from here. Um, Blue Hippos were another great band from that time. Um, yeah, there was just so much going on. Zuzu's Petals, that's Lori Lindine's band. Um, the Blue Up was another. If you know, female fronted band clams. Um, yeah, there was just so much going on, but I would say that's a good handful to start with. So the band got back together uh, a couple years ago. Was there any 
did you have any discussion with them at that time or before when they re- reunited about rejoining the band? Did, was there any sort of talk about that at all? Um, you know, like a way back, you know, a while before that, we had talked about it a little, and um, I think I just, I just didn't have the super enthusiasm. I just, I didn't think it would happen for real. And then as it became more real, you know, I, when they did those reunion shows, um, you know, it was right before I had a baby. So it became like not even a question of that anymore. So not that it never, not that it never came up, but it never came up as a real viable option, you know? Gotcha. I mean, that's a big commitment to sure. really to really be all in, and I don't I don't know that I uh, that I could have been all in, you know. So did you uh, did you follow the band uh, after your exit? Did you keep up with what was going on? What were your emotions about sort of not being involved um, anymore as you moved on in, in your life and uh, the band continued? Immediately afterwards, yeah, I talk about this in the book. It was really hard to see. It was really sad, you know, to, especially like those very first photos where it'd be just looked so weird to see those two and and somebody else and to not be in the photos. And then there's actually like, um, he's my thing video. There's like one edit that Warner Brothers did where they just like caught me out and and put Maureen in. And so, um, yeah, it was a hard time in my life of just feeling really lost and really, um, you know, you you don't ever want to be going to be forgotten or that what you did is going to be erased, but kind of feeling some of that. So so it was definitely challenging. Did you uh, listen to the re- like get the records and listen to them and sort of go down that road, or did you try to avoid it? I listened to Fontanelle and a lot of those songs. You know, I had started recording that. Mm-hmm. You know, just the very very beginning. Um, so so we had been playing a lot of those songs, not all of them, but like about half of them. You know, are ones that we had already been playing at shows and stuff. So. So yeah, I listened to that record, and then after that, um, n- not really. Mm. It's got to be weird to be having worked on things, yeah, and then it's weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say it's like very much like you break up with somebody, and then they like have a new girlfriend, right. <laughs> you know. But it's right. like public a lot, <laughs> right? So yeah, it's kind of that similar feeling, and then you know, wanting so much like in your logical brain, wanting to be like, Oh, it doesn't bother me, but, but your emotional side, you can't help but be affected by it. Did you ever have a thought of either starting another project musically or joining or, or, or joining somebody else's music project or band or, or what have you, or were you pretty much just looking to not play music after you left the band? Um, I played with some people. I I moved out to San Francisco after that and, you know, played, you know, mostly just things would be go to four or five practices and just things kind of fizzled out and, you know, and other bands that approached me. But I, but I thought, 
if I wanted to be in a band, like I would have been in my band, I would have stayed in my band because that was exactly the perfect band for me. Um, one of the details that kept appearing that was intriguing to me in the book was you keep mentioning a particular car that you had at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about the origin. I don't know that it's mentioned about the origin of where you got the car and why it's a very specific. It was, I think it's a Dodge Dart. Is that right? Mm-hmm, the Dodge Dart. Yep. And it was a sixties Dodge Dart, right? It wasn't like from yeah. the eighties or anything like that. Um, how- I think it was, yeah. Like nine or it was maybe like 1972 or yeah early late 60s or early 70s yeah so how did you come about to because you know i was in and i still am i I was really a a car nut when i was a kid and so like 70s cars in like the late 80s were not cool like if you wanted a cool car (laughs) it was like you would go after like the 1950s like 57 chevy or or 50s corvette or something like that like 70s cars i mean in the 80s like the 70s weren't cool at all everybody was you know thought the 70s sucked and then everybody thought the 80s sucked in the 90s and well what happens yeah but i think um, people thought dodge darts were cool so how did you come about come about that car was it just a used car that you bought or is there a backstory to that yeah, it belonged to Howard, who, um, again, Howard comes up, who was our roadie. It was his right. car, and they bought it for 500 bucks, and then went to Earl Scheib's. Did you guys have those there, uh, like, place where they paint your car for, like, 100 bucks? No, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've heard about these, but no, we didn't have those in Ohio. <laughs> like, you drive through. I wish they still had, maybe they still have that. <laughs> Wait, you drive through and they paint your car? <laughs> I think they have them in California. <laughs> I don't know if you're just like, it's not like the car wash, but like it doesn't, yeah, yeah, it's pretty fast. Like they do it in like an hour. Um, That looks great. Yeah. So, so I went to Earl Shives and then got the like hundred dollar purple paint job. Yeah. So no, I think people did think that car was cool because like those in the, and like the seventies Mustang, those were cool. Oh, I don't, I have Uh, to disagree with you on that. (laughs) (laughs) 70s Mustangs are the worst. Those early ones were way too big and they had the engines were all ruined because of the emissions control. So they had like they were like two ton cars with like an undersized engine. Like the are you talking about the little Mustangs when they downsized them? Like the the little mm. or are you talking about like the big fat Mustang from like 72 with like really wide I I I do think that in I some I think I'm places, talking about like, the fatties, yeah. The fatties, okay. And yeah. if I remember like in high school and whatnot, like any Mustang was cool. You know, it's like yeah, right? any muscle car was cool. I guess I have too much of a Yeah, muscle car cars were cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I grew up in Hopkins and there was uh, Hopkins Main Street. They had the, they called it like the strip. And every Friday, everybody would drive their muscle cars like up and down the strip. <laughs> just nice. like that was like your activity. <laughs> it was just driving. Yeah. Did you race? So, uh, no, I was, it was more <laughs> when I was like a littler kid. Yeah. Oh, okay. Then, yeah, then people would like pick up like each other, you know, like, like, okay, hop in the car right. and you just drive around up and down the strip. <laughs> I thought I was so, picturing you driving out of Earl Shive with your purple Dodge Dart and taking it right down the strip. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that was like those two things didn't intersect. I think the strip was already over <laughs> by then. But, uh, but I think that's a really good image. Yeah, I wish I, <laughs> I wish we could have done it. I also had a um, El Camino. Yes. Oh, there <laughs> I, you go. <laughs> I had a black El Camino, and I think that one was seventies, and and was totally cool. Well, there's no uncool <laughs> El Camino. I mean, El, yeah. El Caminos are. Just- I know. Those in Ford Rancheros are pretty much the uh, the epitome <laughs> of of American muscle car I, design. Or I had both. Car. I had a I had a red Ranchero. Oh, that was was like, and it was like so rusty that like the part where you um, put in the gas was just like by itself, just the pipe. <laughs> you know, like there was no metal, there was no car left around it because it rusted out so bad. It was sweet. Well, but that car was five hundred bucks too. Like all cars were five hundred bucks in there. In there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I grew up in all cars in, of mine. I grew up in Buffalo, and I I think most muscle cars were also that were left over because of the salt from the winters. And and Jay, you're in Cleveland, yep. so yeah. like these cars just didn't make it. Like they, if unless they were kept mm-hmm. in a garage during the winter. No, they were all they were always rusted out, and you you could pick them off for five hundred bucks because you know maybe the frame yeah. was still intact, but the bodies were always totally jacked up. Yeah, so you just drive your car for like a year or two, you know, and then you're just like done with it, and it doesn't even matter. You don't even have right. to sell it to anybody. No, you, you just drive it right to the wrecking worth. lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or you just give it to somebody else. Right. Speaking of uh, big clunky tanks, uh, one of the stories I, I enjoyed in the book was uh, the giant base cabinet that you decided to buy uh, <laughs> yeah. and how it keeps reappearing. Uh, if anybody's you know been in a band you know and has had that bass player that decides they're going to do that <laughs> and then punishes everybody else in the band, can you just explain what it is that you're thinking <laughs> when you do that and punish yeah. everyone else? I know. Uh, what was a fun, you know, S U and N two Ns, and it had four fifteen, four fifteen speakers like slanted inward, and it was yeah really heavy. I don't. I was thinking that it sounded badass, and it did. And so it, we would call it like the truck. As well, the amp was called the fridge, but when you play your bass through it, it would sound like a truck. Sounded good. That's why you get that. Yeah. You got me there. You got <laughs> yeah, me there. It definitely sounds good. But hauling those up and down steps, I mean, oh, that is just brutal. Oh, I know. How long did you I do know, that? But How I, long did we, you do? I had that amp a really long time, like three or four years. Did you ever Before have- that was like, it goes like a PV. I went right straight from like the PV that you have that uh-huh. you get like when you're like in junior high, you know, just like the, the, I might really play music and I might not, you don't know if you're serious yet. So you get a PV. So it went right from that to the truck, <laughs> the refrigerator. So did you have uh, so maybe I, I was just like overcompensating. <laughs> yeah. I could see that. It, I mean, those are definitely addictive was when you hear it and you hear all that air being pushed. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Did you, uh, I know. And then you, and then a distort, had a distortion pedal on it. Too, so oh, yeah. it, sounded really, it sounded so good. Yeah. 
Did you uh, did you have a roadie at any point, or were you were you guys hauling your own gear through a lot of this? Most of the time, our own. Me, so I was in the bands five years, and then so I would say like three years was just us, and then the last two years was sometimes you could afford to bring someone with to help, and sometimes you couldn't. Mm-hmm. So, so mostly carrying our own stuff. And when you guys went to Europe, were you taking your own gear? Or did you rent? How did you do that? On the gear, they they have the gear there for you. Gotcha. So you just bring your guitars, or maybe you have like a favorite drum or whatever. But um, yeah, they have, all the amps are there. So that would that would be kind of cool too, because then I could get like an amp pig, or you know, you get to have get to pick out a cool amp that you normally wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned in the book that when you, you know, first started in the band, you were a newbie to playing bass. Like you were, we weren't, you know, some kid who had been playing since you were, you know, five years old and gone through, you know, you know, some sort of schooling or something like that. It was a pretty on the job sort of training. Were there bassists that you were listening to? that you were like, that's the style I want to emulate or that's the tone of the bass I want to get? Or was it pretty much like a trial and error? Uh, I like Geezer Butler. <laughs> okay. That's a good start. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, um, well, bands like the birthday party, you know, all that really, um, you know, heavy thick kind of base. That's the kind of stuff I like. So that could be, you know, things like the birthday party and then, you know, or more like just rock. Okay. You mentioned that you teach. What, what do you teach now? I'm a special ed teacher. So I work at a, um, elementary school. So my students are kindergarten through fifth grade. Okay. I'm just curious about when you're in the teacher's lounge if music, <laughs> if the subject of music ever comes up and you're like, yeah, I love the birthday party. And people are like, what? Because I, I know that I have a difficult time talking with normal people about music because I'm a music obsessive and nerd. So like, I'll be like, oh, I got the re-release of the Girls Against Boys, you know, album from 1995. And they're like, what language are you speaking? Do you find that sort of same inability to talk music with normal people? I don't know that we've ever talked music in the teacher's lounge. <laughs> or just any, I like, ad- like adults. I also like to eat, I like to eat lunch in my office. <laughs> mm, okay. Uh, I can see that. But okay, with other, yeah, because you got to have that minute. Because like teaching is kind of like being on stage. Like you're so, you have to be on, you know, you set right. the stage like for teaching and get all your stuff ready and then, so yeah, I, I like having that quiet time. Um, when I talk about music with people, I don't know because you know, first of all, to be talking about the birthday party or whatever is such a specific type of music and a specific time period. So right, like a lot of teachers are like thirty, you know. Well, I mean, just in so, general, you, <laughs> it seems like your your tastes are a little bit more ob- ob- alternative and indie and obscure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, but you know, I'm in Minneapolis, so people 
know about babies in Toyland, and they think that's pretty cool. Okay. So when they when they find that out, then um, I think they think that is a pretty cool thing. And um, otherwise, yeah, I don't, I don't, it doesn't come up that much. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of the scenario. Yeah, it's it's mostly you know like that. They'll find out about the band and and they'll think that's pretty pretty badass. Gotcha. I don't know. Was that a was that an answer? It sure. It's an answer. <laughs> no, I I, I was that an answer or was that just a tired person talking? <laughs> it's probably a little bit of both. I understand my wife's a teacher, so I this is the time in which she has a glass of wine and she is winding down for the yeah. evening watching HGTV. And uh, yeah, yeah. I know it is. It's time for House Hunters. (laughs) (laughs) She'd fight. She she hates House Hunters. It's all about fixer upper and property brothers. And uh, she's she's always screaming at the TV during House Hunters. What? Why do you care what color the walls are? You can paint the walls. Why do you care? I know. I hate that. Have you watched? I, was, I lived in New Orleans. I was a real estate agent, and people were so annoying. You wouldn't believe it. There, they are. Those house hunters people. It was like put it mildly. Like you would go and you, they would, the people would walk in and they're like, I don't like this, you know, house at all. Like whatever. Like okay, then let's go. You know, but then they'd want it. Can we go up in the attic? You know, not like a finished mm, attic, but like yeah. pull down the attic ladder. I want to go up there and look, but you don't even. Well, you don't even like this house, so like, can we right. just go? They just want to snoop around the house. Yeah. Yeah, forever. Oh. And then you have like five houses. So this was back like 10 years ago. So you'd have to, you couldn't just do like lockbox and walk in and out when you wanted. You had to schedule it with the other agent. Mm-hmm. So they would be up in the attic and then you'd be an hour late to have all this whole <laughs> series of agents waiting for you. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, so annoying. So, yeah. what was worse, that or being in the in a van with the same three people for a month? <laughs> um, the real estate was worse. Yeah, okay, <laughs> I see that um, for sure. So, in terms of the book, what was the what was one of the most challenging aspects of writing the book? Was it the editing aspect when you have to go back and quote unquote kill your babies where you have to like cut things that maybe you want to keep or what have you? Or was it just putting, putting it all down? What was the toughest part? Um, no, the, I love doing the editing. I think that's really fun. I like moving chapters around. Part of part was um, kind of going into like some of those really emotional places um, that just having to really um, kind of dig deep and and talk about things that were were really you know hard experiences that I went through. Right, we haven't touched on it yet, but there's a a very tragic twist. Not twist. That's not the right word. But there's a, a aspect of the book which it, ca- it sort of changes. Well, it's where the part where the book where it becomes less of a music book and more of just a person's journey. I guess you'd say, um, whereas, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if writing about it and, uh, what you went through was a cathartic experience. If that was something that helped you maybe 
deal with that or if you had already dealt with that before. Because um, I imagine that writing it and putting it down had to be, you know, very emotional. Yeah. Um, I put perspective on it, I, but it wasn't, you know, after, I've talked about this before, but it never, it's just still, everything that was sad is just still sad. Um, but it was good. It's always, I think it's always good to talk about it and to really you know, examine it as, you know, as deep as I went into that just really helped me understand it more. Right. I was amazed at the bravery afterwards with the journey that you took moving out to the West Coast, you know, living on your own and then moving to New Orleans after that and just forging this path of you know, you're going to be totally self-determined and, you know, not rely on other people. I was stunned quite, was, was probably the word. Cause I know I don't, you know, I, I don't think I could have made those similar choices. Um, looking back, are you kind of, a, is it shocking to you that you went through that period afterwards? Do you look at that and go, wow, that was it? it took some amazing courage to make those decisions or, um, or does it make sense in what happened? Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think about when I see other people who are the age I was then, you know, who are right. you know, 22, 23. And I think about, you know, all those things that I went to went through by the time I was that age. Yeah. I think it's pretty, um, amazing, you know, in hindsight, you know, that just as, you know, I traveled alone a lot. I, I left Minneapolis after, you know, after I left the band and, and just moved to these towns where I didn't know anybody and, or, you know, maybe knew one or two people and made a life, you know, somehow put together these different lives. Um, so I'm really proud of that. And I think, that experience being, you know, in this place in my life, um, is really makes it so I don't have regrets. Not like, oh, I wish I would have, you know, lived somewhere else, or, or, you know, I just don't feel like I have those kind of regrets like a lot of people I talk to do. So, right. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad I did all of those things. I'm proud of myself for doing that. Uh, the thing that so the book ends um I guess you'd say in the late 90s would be the time frame. So it doesn't go up to like yeah. this past yeah. year or anything. How did you end up going to Goddard then in is it Connecticut? Um It's in Vermont. Vermont. Okay. Um how did you um, end up there? It was a low residency program, so that means like you go for every semester you spend like a week on campus and then you work with an advisor from your home. So I just um I went back to college, you know, in my when I was in my thirties and um just everything just kept leading to writing of you know, I wanted to be a vet and I just couldn't like pass the, the 
the science was like beyond me. The chemistry, I couldn't pass those class. I could pass them, but I could only get like a C, you know, I couldn't get, you had to get like straight A's to get into that school and, and just looking at other things and just the writing was always just such a passion. So I just went with that and I, I got an internship at city pages, which is our village voice paper. And then, started blogging for them and decided, you know, I just wanted to keep learning more. So, so that's how I ended up at Goddard. Okay. That's interesting. Cause it, when you mentioned about blogging for them, I'm curious, like if what had happened with your journey in the nineties had happened now, it probably would have been a different experience because you would have had the internet and, mm-hmm. be, you know, moving out to San Francisco, you would have, been able to get an Airbnb and you know it would have been a much different like experience you would have had you know Yelp reviews for restaurants and all the like there's no sense, <laughs> yeah. well whatever like there's no sense of like the unexpected or the uncharted now everything is cataloged yeah, yeah, and yeah. reviewed and every club has you know a, a Facebook page with comments on it like there's no what you did then it was much more in some respects dangerous, like you mentioned about being alone in strange cities, but also in a way like exhilarating because you, there's no sense of the unknown now. And I mean, I, I, and I don't know, um, you know, that you can still do this, but you, you, you know, back then you could still, even in San Francisco, I got like a little tiny studio apartment for $500 a month, which just seemed like so outrageous. But, you know, I worked, couple jobs so like I was waitressing and I worked at like a theater uh, you know like a like where they had plays kind of theater and you know you could you could do something like that but now it seems like you know here at least in Minneapolis even little apartments are like $900 a month but yeah you could you could put together like a little life like that you know um so I'm pretty sure that's non-existent in San Francisco now I'm pretty yeah, sure everything costs $1,000 per square inch out there. I know. I know. Yeah, it's amazing. And I mean, it was a, I was like near the Castro, so it was a, right on Market Street. So, um, you know, it was a great location and everything, really central. Yeah, so just this little vintage apartment. And, and, you know, I could just take the bus to my jobs and... So, yeah, and it was that, like, you just wander around and find places and meet people and discover things and, you know, explore. So I have always been an explorer. Anytime I go to a new city, I like to just, like, drive around and get lost and and find the little neighborhoods that are, you know, not as central. So that's always been part of my personality. There's so much, I mean, you guys are touching on it, but there's so much in this book that captures a moment in time that I, there's so, so much about it that I'll just never be able to happen again. You know, I think that's one thing that yeah. was, kept standing out to me. Um, just just take the example of, of bands. I mean, just the idea of getting together with three other people and just, with no pretense, just making noises until you find a sound. Like, I don't know if that'll, that'll yeah. happen again. I think now kids, you know, go on YouTube and learn how to play guitar like Steve Vai. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Like, that's music. It, there's no like, 
I don't know what I'm doing, but let's get three of us together and make noise for two months and see what happens, you know? Um, just as know. one I example. Older, when you get older, you just always think whatever, like the younger people <laughs> are doing is like worse than what you did or something. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I know around here, there's a lot of great bands coming out of here. So I think they're still doing all that stuff. We're just like not invited anymore. <laughs> I, I hope so. I sure hope so. <laughs> Yeah, there's really cool bands coming out of here for sure. Well, we're, out of everywhere, we're about to hit the hour mark, so we want to stay true to our word and um, let you uh, get back to House Hunters, which is about to. Uh, well, you're in, you're in Central <laughs> Time, so you got another hour, I think. I, I do have to ask one more question. Oh, okay, though. go Jay. Uh, I just have to ask if because you're from Minneapolis. I, I just, I need to know if you have a Prince story. Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, well, yeah, there, you know, uh, out in Hopkins where I grew up, like he, you would just go to like the Dairy Queen and like Prince would pull up like in a limo and like get ice cream, you know? So I mean, they're not like extraordinary stories, but it was mm-hmm. just like that you know, everyday things like you go to the movies and Prince would be there, you know? Um, so that's like really extraordinary. And you, and we just all got so used to that. It was just like spotting the unicorn, you know, (laughs) or, you know, friends who, um, you were in the press and there'd be a last minute show at Paisley park and you go, and there would be, you know, maybe 50 people there and you could just stand right by the stage, you know, like if they're rehearsing for a tour or, or you know, whatever reasons they'd have those surprise shows. So, I don't know, it's so sad. Mm. It was just, uh, you know, for everybody, but it just for us here, it was like our own like special, really special thing. Well, in speaking with... Uh, who was Allison, I believe it was, who was emailing with at the uh, the Minneapolis, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name now, but uh, what's her name? Oh, Allison? my publishers? Yeah. Um, oh, she, yeah, yeah. The Minnesota she, Thank you. Um, she <laughs> let me know they have a number of books about various aspects of Minneapolis coming out over the years. Uh, over the next year um that so i think and jay you mentioned this i think next year we are going to be doing a round table on the minneapolis scene because there's a book coming out about first avenue which is a legendary Mm -hmm. club um Mm -hmm. there's a book about one that's called uh heyday 35 years of music in minneapolis which is a photo book yeah dan corrigan yeah dan corrigan is this this legendary photographer who, you know, has just shot every everybody. And so finally, you know, this has just been something that's been like years, years in the making. So finally this book of, of his photos. Yeah. That comes out in November. And then next year there's a book mm-hmm. on the history of punk in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And then there's a book about mm-hmm. first Avenue. So I think the plan is after those three books come out, like next, cause we do two of the, the, scene episodes per year one in the spring and then one in the fall so next fall we'll probably do minneapolis and be able to talk about all these books and and talk about the scene in minneapolis and because really i i think 
and we can wrap it up on this. I think Minneapolis is not only a part of the '90s scene, but it's really a a, a progenitor, if that's the right word, of the of the of the '90s scene from the '80s. Because a lot of Huskadu, the replacements, mm-hmm. uh, Soul Asylum, you mentioned Run Westy Run, but there were some other earlier bands that were really the influence for a lot of '90s independent and college artists. In the same way that like. REM being from Athens and there were some other bands from Athens that were influential in the eighties that ended up pushing the, the nineties scene. So it'd be interesting to mm-hmm. uh, talk about that. Maybe if you, uh, if you're free, if we, if it's a, uh, after nine o'clock, we'll, uh, we'll get you on for the round table. <laughs> yeah. I'd, like to be, I'd love to be at the, uh, at the round table. Excellent. Well, Michelle, so I hope Added out some of the parts where I ramble too much. Oh, you're fine. <laughs> We've had people on here. They went for like five minutes uninterrupted. So that's what our listener. Okay. That's what our listeners like. You know. Yeah. They do. Oh, good. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, it, I'm not feeling like too too snappy in the brain. <laughs> like you said, I had is that house hunters time today. It's house hunters time. All uh, right. Uh, by the way, if you're a House Hunters fan, you need to watch <laughs> Tiny House Hunters. Oh my God, it is the oh, best so show annoying. I have ever seen. To hate watch, <laughs> I know it's worse. It is so good. My like, really, you don't have to live in there. The people who have kids or wouldn't pets. that be so annoying? I know. Can you imagine? The well, it's because everybody who's on the show, like you can tell has some other issue going on. Mm-hmm. Like why they're looking <laughs> yeah. for a tiny house and like they're very passive aggressive and the realtors are annoyed because they don't really want a tiny house. <laughs> I mean, literally, yeah. they'll go into the house and be like, wow, this is really small. <laughs> I was like what? <laughs> what are you doing? You want so, it 300 square feet. It's amazing. <gasps> Oh. I know. So cue that up. That's yeah. terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's it's that's a scream fest when that show is on. It is absolutely <laughs> horrifying. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us and talking about the book and the band. And yeah, thank you. Do you have a uh, Twitter or a Facebook or a website or anything that you'd like to direct people to? Yeah, there is um, a Facebook page for the book. So uh, it's under Michelle Leon's I Live Inside. Excellent. And um, yeah, no Twitter. Um, yes, that's the place. And people can go to such places as Amazon to pick it up. Um, yeah, and also the Minnesota Historical Society Press. You can buy it from um, um, them directly too. Yep, and, and Amazon and all those kind of places, Barnes and Noble. Um, you know, should be in a lot of the bookstores. Excellent. Well, thank you t- for taking time out of your Wednesday evening to ta- to talk with us about everything, and we look forward to having you back in yeah. the fall of twenty seventeen. <laughs> Roundtable. <laughs> Roundtable. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot. You guys have a good night. All right. You thank too. you. You thank too. You. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash dig me out or 
requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com.